called human, uh, what it means to be real. And so last week we looked at a real heart, today a real threat as we continue the journey with David. There is more narrative material about the life of David than anyone else in the Bible. Uh, And so that's why we're leaning into this theme of human, uh, because David shows us uh, very much what it looks like to be on a journey with God uh, and all the ups and all the downs. And so last week we saw uh, this defining moment in David's life in which Samuel the prophet is called to Bethlehem. The sons of Jesse line up one by one. None of them is chosen by king uh, as king until David is brought in from the shepherd's field. And God said, this is the guy, anoint him. And so he is anointed as Israel's future king. But it would be well over a decade before David would ascend the throne. And so David lives where many of us live, in the in-between, in the waiting. How many of you here enjoy waiting at the doctor's office? Show of hands. Anybody love that? Or you're sitting around and you're sniffles and you're feeling terrible and it just feels like it's dragging on and they put you in a room with a bunch of other sick people, which is a brilliant idea as you wait to see the doctor. Nobody likes that moment. How many of you like being stuck in traffic? Something we can all relate to in this part of town, right? No one. Why? Because we have somewhere that we're trying to get. And so it certainly develops your character and your patience to sit there in Spring Hill traffic as we wait. How many of you love waiting for a webpage to load? Anybody? Think about it. We have the world's information at our fingertips now, but we get so impatient if the Wi-Fi isn't working. If you want to shut down your family, turn off the Wi-Fi and watch what happens, the panic that ensues in your kids and everybody in the house. It's pretty remarkable these days. We aren't conditioned to wait and it's only gotten worse in the culture in which we live. So what is our posture in the waiting? What do we do when we're diagnosed with a health condition? What do we do when we're in a job that we feel like is going nowhere? What do we do as we are on the long valley journey of raising children and grandchildren? What do we do in these in-between times? And that's what we're gonna learn about today. The things that God was shaping in David were as important as what David was doing. And we need to remember that. It's a timely message for all of us as we live in the in-between, between the already and the not yet. Will you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read this passage together from 1 Samuel and chapter 16, beginning in verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul and an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. So Saul's servant said to him, You see that an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to to look for someone who knows how to play the liar. Whenever the evil spirit from God comes on you, that person can play the liar and you will feel better. Then Saul commanded his servants, find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's also a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a wineskin and one young goat and sent them by 
his son David to Saul. When David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul loved him very much and David became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, let David remain in my service for he has found favor with me. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play and Saul would then be relieved, feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. Speak for your servants are listening. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, as we jump back into the life of David, we're grateful that we have so much material about his life that allows us to see what happens in the in-between from the moment he was anointed to the moment he became king. It was not a short period of time. And many of us in this room feel like we're stuck in the waiting as well, that we're between one thing and the next. God, would we have your eyes to see today what you're doing in us as you are with us, your people. So Lord Jesus, open our ears, our hearts, and our lives before you now. And it's in your name we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. As we discussed last week, one of the major themes in the books of First and Second Samuel are how do we see there are things that we see on the, the surface, the physical anointing of Samuel, of David, right? That was something that we would all see. But what's more important is that we are allowed to see through scripture, God's vantage point and God's uh, viewpoint. And so as we looked at that passage last week, the commentator includes for us, the author of scripture, in the presence of his brothers, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that point forward. That, as we talked about last week, was the most important thing that happened in Bethlehem on that day. It was the most important thing that would ever happen in David's lifetime. Because now the scene is going to shift as we are going to see David in the presence of the royal court in the presence of the king. Now, most commentators believe that this part of the story actually took place after the story of David and Goliath that we'll look at last week. But they're deliberately placed side by side so we can literally see the tale of two kings. What happens with Saul and his spiritual trajectory and what happens with David. So our first movement, our first point this morning is this, is that we need to see Saul's spiritless condition. We need to see Saul's spiritless condition. Verse 14, the spirit of the Lord had left Saul. And for New Testament believers, sometimes reading that, that causes a little bit of cognitive, cognitive dissonance. Why? Because we believe, John 10, uh, and in other places in the New Testament, explicitly teaches us that you cannot lose your salvation. That once you are saved, you are always secure in the hands of the Father. So we need to go back to understand what was happening in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, as we looked at last week in places like Judges and in other places, we see God's Spirit is sent on leaders and people for a specific task for a specific moment. In other words, when that happened to Saul, and it says that it did, that God's spirit came on him in 1 Samuel 10.10 and 1 Samuel 10.16, what that doesn't mean is that Saul had been born again into a saving faith, the way that you and I understand that in the new covenant. So this doesn't mean that Saul, quote, lost his salvation. What it means very clearly is that Saul disobeyed the Lord, rejected the word of the Lord, and God finally said, have it your way. 
C.S. Lewis has a famous quote in which he says, there are two kinds of people in the world. The kind of people to whom they say to God, thy will be done. But there's another kind of person in the world. People who do it their way so long that finally God looks at them and says, fine, thy will be done. Translation, you have it your way. You deal with the consequences of your rejection of me. Turn with me, flip back a page to 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23, and you'll see what we're talking about. The text makes it very clear. And so King Saul has been confronted by Samuel. King Saul deliberately disobeyed God more than once, but on this occasion, God has had enough. And so he sends the prophet to tell the king, verse 22, look, behold, pay attention, Saul. It doesn't matter if you're the king. To obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, something Saul would commit later. And defiance is like the wickedness of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. That is terrifying. To see the consequences of what happens when we disobey. Not only that, it says next, another troubling section, an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. So we rightfully ask the question, well, wait, God, evil, what can they have in common with each other? The answer is nothing, right? God hates evil. This word evil in the Hebrew can be translated misery. It's probably better to say, right, that an angel of judgment was sent by the Lord to torment Saul. Why does God send his judgment so that people will feel the weight of their sin and they will repent and return to God. So it's actually God's grace. God's attempting to reach Saul, to bring him back. God sends the spirit to torment him. The spirit will continue to do so. And yet, sadly, tragically, Saul never repents. And so his life becomes a downward spiral. Same kind of downward spiral that we read about in the New Testament in Romans chapter one. What happens when people habitually give themselves over to sin time and time again. At some point, God says, fine, have it your way. And they are given over to that sin. Because from this point forward, Saul, as we'll see in the text, becomes totally unstable. He becomes erratic. He becomes jealous, all of these things. And I've read a lot of bad articles and commentaries that right, talk about the fact that Saul was experiencing mental illness. That's not primarily what this is about. We need to be careful that we're not trying to be armchair psychologists and psychiatrists with this passage and with King Saul. What it's first and foremost about is a spiritual condition. Saul has rejected the Lord's ways. And so God has given him over. God gives him the opportunity to return to him, but sadly, Saul never does. And that is the tragic result of what happens when the spirit leaves, when there is no spiritual presence in the life of a person. They do become increasingly erratic. It becomes hard to tell the truth from a lie. And we'll see that over and over again in Saul's life. And so Saul's court, his servants say, well, well, Saul, we see what's happening in your life. And so may we suggest a remedy, someone who can play the lyre or the harp for you. 
In other words, they're trying to put a Band-Aid on his heart condition, give him a sedative instead of heart surgery is what he really needs. And so Saul agrees to it. Yeah, right? Everybody likes a little soothing music. Everybody likes a little classical going in the background, a little jazz when you're trying to mellow out a little bit. We know and research even proves that music can have that effect on the soul. Good music soothes the soul. Bad music has the opposite effect though, doesn't it? Right? It sends us in the other direction. And so I think that's what inspired Gary Larson, the cartoonist who wrote The Far Side, to come up with this little cartoon. It's one of my favorites, right? The top, you've got the guy entering heaven. It says, welcome to heaven, here's your harp. And on the bottom it says, welcome to hell, here's your accordion. (laughs) Any accordion players in the room? Okay, good, we're safe, all right? But we get the picture, it's true then. In ancient times, it's true now. A little music soothes the soul. But why did Saul's soul need soothe? Because he had rejected God and he was living out the consequences of that rejection. And brothers and sisters, I believe one of the reasons that God had David witness this is because later in David's life, David too would sin and disobey. It's why in the 51st Psalm, the Psalm David wrote after his sin. He knows he deserves what Saul got. And so David writes these words, Psalm 51, 10 and 11, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Do you hear the urgency in that prayer? You see, David had experienced firsthand, had seen it in Saul's life, what happens when there's no spirit presence, when God is no longer with you. And David, above all things, was terrified of that. And so he cries out, God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So we need to see Saul's condition. Contrasted with our second point this morning, which is this, we need to see David's spiritual growth. We need to see David's growth. We see the hand of God all over David's story at this point. As I told you last week, at the end of the story, the passage that we read, it says at the end of verse 13, Samuel, after this anointing, went to Ramah. He went home. David went where? Back to the pasture. Now that's a a little odd. I mean, this is the guy who's anointed the future king of Israel. Well, God was not done with him in the pasture. There were some things that David had to learn. David had to learn how to use that slingshot. David had to learn to depend on no one but the Lord. David had to learn how to fight off the lions and the bears. And David most likely carried with him into that pasture a little small version of a lyre, a little small harp, a little small guitar by our standards today. And he would spend and pass the time, some of those endless hours in those shepherd fields around Bethlehem, learning to play that lyre. And so we should relate to this here of all places because this is a Nashville story, right? There's a kid in a small town somewhere right now learning to play a guitar and he's spending endless hours in obscurity. Maybe he's plucking the guitar for his family members, sitting around the the fireplace. Maybe he plays for his church. Maybe he's playing in a little honky tonk in the middle of nowhere somewhere. But at some point, some agent or record company from Nashville comes and that guy is suddenly discovered. The reality is, is he's been working hard toiling in his craft, getting better day by day, hour by hour, rehearsing his chords, rehearsing his scales, right? So that when that moment comes, he's ready. 
And in the same way, part of what God was doing in the pasture was preparing David for this moment because Saul says, I need a guitarist, go find me one. And one of Saul's servants says, I know a guy, he can play a chord or two. He's a pretty decent musician. But not only that, he has quite the resume. Listen to what else is said about David. He is also a valiant man. He's a warrior. He's eloquent, meaning he's good with words. He's handsome, meaning he presents himself well. And the Lord is with him. Isn't it ironic that Saul's servant is the one who really calls out the discrepancy between Saul and David? The Lord is not with Saul. The Lord is with David. And brothers and sisters, I know it's easy. That's like the end of a sentence and it just seems like a typical sentence in the Bible, but I want you to highlight and underline that phrase. The Lord is with him. I want you to say it with me. The Lord is with him. Say it again. The Lord is with him because that's the most important thing about David. And it's the most important thing about you if you are in Christ. We've all got our resumes, our things that we do well, right? The accomplishments and accolades that we've received, what other people would say about us. But man, would people say about you and me? But hey, the most important thing is the Lord is with that man. The Lord is with that woman. The most important thing about David was not what David did, it's what God did in David. And that's what the servant is letting us know. And that's what sets David apart. Why? So he can serve faithfully in the king's court. And so after his audition, basically Saul tells Jesse, hey, send him on. So Jesse sends a, a gift basket in the ancient world back to Saul and David enters the king's court. Now, I think this is for a couple of reasons. Number one is this. To this point, David had learned what it means to be a shepherd and to have a shepherd's heart. But now, if David was someday going to be king, David needed to learn how you ran a court, how you administrated a kingdom. And there was a gift for David in being able to be present in Saul's court before he was the king. There's a gift in learning to lead under before you are called to lead over. It was about 20 plus years ago when in one month I got five calls from different churches all inquiring about me going to serve on their church staff. A range of different positions. One of them was the position to go back home to a church in Illinois and there I would be positioned to take over for the senior pastor in a few months. So opportunity at 26 years old for me to become a senior pastor. Also, Brentwood Baptist Church called on the other end of the spectrum and the position they offered was that of middle school minister. I love middle school kids. I just don't like them some days, right? <laughs> and so as we walked through that process, I sought out the wisdom of the pastor that I grew up under. His name's Bob Ward. We had lunch at Applebee's in Salem, Illinois. And so over lunch, I asked him about these opportunities. And he said, Jay, first and foremost, you've got to go obviously where God calls you to go. But he goes, let me give you some food for thought. He said, when I was 19 years old, I felt called to preach. And so I was hired as a senior pastor at a little country Baptist church. He said, every mistake I ever made, I made as senior pastor of a church. He said, just food for thought. If you have the chance to go somewhere and lead under, you have the chance to learn by watching, by learning, by taking good notes. Sometimes the lessons will be negative, don't do this. Sometimes the lessons will be, wow, that was effective. Learn from that person, learn from that method of ministry. But he said, there's a gift in leading under before you lead 
over. And so, you know the story. We ended up, for many reasons, but including that bit of wisdom, accepting the call to be middle school minister at Brentwood Baptist Church 21 and a half years ago now. And so I had the opportunity to learn, middle school minister, student minister. David was exposed, right, to a court in which he got to learn by watching an example. Sometimes that example was probably good, how to run a kingdom. Sometimes, obviously, the example by having an upfront seat to Saul and his whimsy was not. But David got to learn. But not only that was God positioning David for what he had in the future. I will argue that David, God used David during the season in his guitar playing as a sign and as a means of restraining grace. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It says when David played, and he played well, he, he did, did it to the glory of God, right? We read in the New Testament, Colossians 3.23, and whatever you do in word or deed, you do it all as you're doing it for the Lord and not for men. And so David, instead of saying, I'm supposed to be the future king. Instead, David, when the time came to play, he played with all his heart. And it soothed Saul. And so what that meant was Saul's wheels didn't completely come off the tracks. It meant that the kingdom of Israel, right? God's people were blessed because the king didn't go totally bonkers. David could soothe him. And again, Saul could make good decisions and go on. That's restraining grace. And so if you're in a dead end job, if you're in a system that you feel like is broken, find encouragement by David's example because God uses his people as agents of restraining grace in a broken world. Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, you are to be salt and light. You are to be in every part of society as my followers, preserving, bringing God's common grace to bear on the place that you're at. And so David had the opportunity to be both of these things, but see this clearly. Already in the text, David is the anointed king and yet Saul is the official king, yet who is really in control? Saul can't soothe his emotions without David. David is the one who is what? With the Lord and the Lord is with him. Which leads us to our third point this morning, which is this, is that we see the struggle as David learns to develop endurance. You see, this story sets the scene for everything that's to come. In the ensuing chapters, there are 15 stories about the back and forth and the rivalry between Saul and David that develops. David, as we'll see next week in chapter 17, defeats Goliath and no more happens than he's in the victory parade than the text tells us. Saul was jealous and his eyes were on David to take him down from that point forward. And so the rest of the story of David is about hills and valleys until he is anointed king. It's much like our life. We go from one hill, one success, one victory into the valley. And then out of the valley, Lord willing, there's some better days ahead, but there's only a matter of time before we're back in the valley. Think about David's journey. He defeats Goliath. He defeats the great Philistine champion. There's parades, right? And there's success. The king gives him his daughter to marry. He gets a job at Capitol Hill. Juan Sally calls that good times, right? He is on the hill. He is on the mountaintop. But what happens after that? Saul, egomaniac grows jealous. Saul's like that description of a person in James 1 who is tossed to and fro. And so whatever Saul's whimsy is, David has to deal with. Saul uses state-controlled media to trash David's reputation. He takes his wife away and gives her to another man. 
And by the way, when David starts playing the guitar for Saul, Saul starts throwing spears at David. Now, some of us have had bad bosses, but I hope you've never had somebody throw a spear at you while you're trying to do your job, right? David had to deal with that multiple times. And yet David deals with it. And so by the time we get to chapter 24, I want you to turn there in your Bibles. I'm gonna look at one story today that I think is illustrative of, again, this contrast between the tale of two kings. As we tell, by the time we get to chapter 24, David is now literally a refugee in his own kingdom. He's on the run. Saul is trying to hunt him down and murder him. From city to city, village to village, David's going through all kinds of things, trying to just survive. And this moment finds David at a place called En Gedi. It's in Israel. You can go there today. I was just there with some friends in the month of May. Here's a picture that I took of the very same caves that David and his friends were hiding out in. Now, we don't know which cave, but it's this little ravine that juts off of the Dead Sea. This is a Judean wilderness. It is a hostile, difficult country. But there's a reason that this little enclave is a popular place. Because if you hike about 300 yards to your right coming out of these caves, you come to this, hidden in the rocks. It's a beautiful oasis. Water flowing there. Place to cool off from the scorching heat. It was and, about 105 degrees the day that, that we were there. It's a beautiful little spot. So it was very, very popular. So David and his men are hiding out while they are on the run from Saul. They are in the back of one of these caves. And so they are relieving themselves from the heat. And Saul comes in, quite frankly, to relieve himself. And so Saul is there and he's in the most compromising position possible as he disrobes to go about his business and David's men are in the back of the cave being like, David, that's Saul. Like, this is it. God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Like, take his life. Man, what an opportunity. I can't believe it. His men are out there wanting to give him privacy that he doesn't have any bodyguards with him. This is it, David. This is the moment we've been waiting for. All the running, right? You're, You're the king. You're anointed. God has chosen you. Man, David, this is your chance. Kill the king, ascend to the throne. And so David creeps up on Saul in the cave, pulls out his knife. He does not kill Saul, but just cuts off a corner of Saul's robe, carries it back to the back of the cave. And David's guys are like, what are you doing? Like, this was your shot. This was your chance. David's even guilt-ridden that he even cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And here's the reason why. Read with me in verse six. He said to his men, I swear before the Lord, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. You see, David, as he is being developed by the Spirit, as he's deepening his faith, he recognizes that Saul may be his human enemy, but he is the one that God has put on the throne and God has not, for whatever reason, taken him off the throne. So he is the Lord's anointed. David has more respect for Saul because God's hand is on his life. And he says, I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And so David waits for Saul, finishes business, walk out of the cave, get a few yards away, very wise on David's part. And he calls out to Saul, Saul, I could have killed you. He holds up the corner of his robe. Saul realizes it's missing. And listen to Saul's own testimony. 
about this moment. Verse 16, when David finished saying these things to him, Saul replied, is that your voice, David, my son? Then Saul wept aloud and said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me, although I have done what is evil to you. You yourself had told me today what good you did for me. When the Lord handed me over to you, you didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? So may the Lord repay you with good for what you've done for me today. Even Saul recognizes the difference in David. That's the testimony to the spirit at work in our lives. We see the world through God's eyes, not our own. We see the world through God's ways, not our own. And it's fascinating to me because I believe that David knows it's impossible to love God by breaking the commands of God. Thou shalt not kill. David knows that drinking the poison of revenge will never satisfy our thirst for living water. David knows that. Why? Because what church? The Lord is with him. The Holy Spirit is with him. And so you and I have to retrain our eyes to see what God sees. When your faith is under threat, when you are in the in-between like so many of us are, how do you live? What do you do? Our takeaways are this today. Number one, see the work of the Spirit in our sanctification. Sanctification is a fancy word for what makes us more like Jesus. See, we've got to push back against this superficial Christianity that says, man, come to Jesus, answer God's call, and your life will be easy. Wrong. There are 15 stories about David's difficulties to prove to us that responding to God's call, following the lead of the Spirit, is not often very easy. But in that journey, in between where we're at and where God has us going, we see the work of the Spirit making us more like Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. These are verses that become a bit of a theme for us as a congregation. We rejoice in our afflictions. That means pressures. Think David was under some pressure? You know that he was. He was tired physically. He was wounded emotionally. He was on the run constantly under pressure. But Paul tells us in the spirit, we can find joy in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope and that hope will not disappoint us. You see, you put your hope in a person, you put your hope in a worldly system, you put your hope in your achievements or the stock market or whatever, it will all let you down. But God is shaping you into to be more like the one person, Jesus Christ, who will never let you down. So we trust God on that journey. Why? Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, the good news for us in the new covenant era is, is that if you are in Christ Jesus, if you know him as Savior and Lord, then the Holy Spirit is with you. And so you are not alone in that valley. You are not alone in that cave. You are not alone in the journey from where you are to where God has you going. We see the work of the Spirit in our sanctification. Number two, our second takeaway, don't miss this. I told you there is a big gospel hint in every story. Because David's story isn't primarily about David, it's about God. And God uses David's story to point us to the true and better king, King Jesus. And did you catch this? As David is serving in Saul's court, 
David is a servant who is simultaneously the king, just like Jesus was when he came. Mark 10, 45 says, the son of man, Jesus says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So know that as you follow King Jesus, it doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter, right, what your destiny is. You serve him faithfully in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school. And that's honoring of the king, right? Who humbled himself, Philippians 2, and became obedient even to death on the cross. David is the servant who is simultaneously the king. And last but not least, see this. See the sovereignty of the God who is the Lord of both the hills and the valleys in your life. So whatever journey you're on, whatever painful place you find yourself. It might be a health diagnosis. It might be a dead end job. It might be difficult children or grandchildren, right? It might be just trying to be a believer in this broken world, but whatever valley you find yourself in, know that we see in the life of God, that God is sovereign to shape David for his purposes. And at the same time, what God is doing in and through David matters. And so we trust we trust God on the journey. And that's what we want to do today. As we continue, narrative sermons are always challenging. Where do, you, where do you pause for a moment to reflect? This is where we pause today. So we want you to make your seat an altar this morning. To put down your Bible, put both feet on the floor, bow your head. Because what I want you to do is name before God where you are. You feel stuck in some part of your life. You feel confused by the shadows of the valley that you're in. Whatever it is, we're gonna name it, bring it before God. And then after 90 seconds of prayer, I'm going to read over you Psalm 57. Guess when David wrote Psalm 57, when he was on the run from Saul. And so I'm going to read those words over you. And then Mary and the team are gonna sing a beautiful song over us to remind us that God is with us, whether we're on the hills or in the valleys. So let's pray together this morning, 90 seconds. You tell God where you're at. You be honest with him about where you're at on this journey between the already and the not yet, between where you're at and where you feel like God has you going. Pour out your hearts to him. And then I'm gonna read these verses over all of us because I need this. You need this. As we sang earlier, we need the presence of the Lord. And to be reminded today that if we are in Christ Jesus, the most important thing about us is that the Lord is with us. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have the story of David, that we don't just see the mountaintops in his life, but we see the valleys as well. Because in the valley, it's where we live a lot of our life. Running from one place to the next, living in the in-between. We need your word so we can see what you see that you are forming in us the things that we'll need for the journey and that you are working in us to accomplish your plan and purpose. So in this time, David wrote these words and we speak them by your spirit into our own hearts and lives as well today. Be gracious to me, God, be gracious to me for I take refuge in you I will seek refuge in the shadow of your wings until danger passes. I call to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He reaches down from heaven and saves me, challenging the one who tramples me. God sends his faithful love and truth. Oh God, by your spirit, may we know your faithful love and truth today. It's in your name we pray.